you know what I loved about that was um, I think you related to everyone who's here, whether they're a, uh, thinking about grit for themselves or, or as a parent or as a leader. So we, we all... It's a great topic. <laughs> We're thinking about it all the time. Hey, so, um, you know, we've uh, been following your success with the book this year, and uh, you've been on a book tour, and um, obviously you were just chatting about being at West Point, doing some things. And you've had an opportunity over the past several months to probably think about your own career. What are a couple of nouns that you would use to describe what you do personally and professionally right now? Well, just give us a couple yeah, nouns. this is good. This is great. Well, you know, I was in this um, leadership workshop. And by the way, I have my own tiny little organization myself. So I study people like General Caslin, but then i got to go home and, like, make my lab into as close a place to West Point as I can. And so I was in this leadership workshop, and there's a facilitator, and uh, he asked a similar question. And I thought about all the different character strengths, and I thought, oh, yeah, I really am what I study. I, I do get up again. It's not that I'm not disappointed sometimes or I don't question myself, but I am tremendously gritty. And I can tell you, yeah, I'm pretty smart. I mean, I'm not going to say, like, oh, I'm just average. But I'm, I'm pretty smart. But, man, you will never outwork me. You won't, because I will just keep going. So I think I'm, I'm very much a, a, a subject of my, I mean, I, I, it's not a coincidence I ended up studying this thing. Um, but I'll tell you what I'm striving for, and maybe that will help. One of the things that I've noticed about these great leaders is that they have something else. And by the way, I'm not able to fully connect the dots, and maybe somebody here will be able to tell me how these things are connected. But they're enormously humble individuals. And so I'm wondering, what is this connection between genuine, authentic humility and passion and perseverance? And I, again, like I haven't been able to connect those, but I'm striving to be ever more humble. Not to say that I want to feel like I'm not worthwhile or that I'm less worthy than others, but, uh, but I think the kind of egolessness that I see of people like General Caslin at West Point or, or Pete Carroll at the Seahawks, it's unfakeable, and I have now seen it across all these domains of great individuals doing so many different things with their lives. That's great. A lot let, um, still to be learned, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that maybe that's it. I mean, I'm sort of like, oh, was it about care? I don't right. know, but, but maybe that's it. Maybe it's this posture of just, you know, I'm always at the beginning yeah. in some sense, right? So, so... Um... At some level, it's sort of axiomatic that people say that research is me-search, right? And yeah. so you just Either talk about Either because you these... have it or because you don't. Okay. Right. And you, don't you just it. talked about some of those nouns. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was it about your, your personal life or your professional life growing up, you think, that caused you to uh, be interested in this topic? Well, it's interesting. Now, which it, with my 13- and 14-year-old, uh, I'll tell you something that like, I've, I've witnessed in them, and I'm sort of back-mapping to, like, where the heck did I get this ridiculous drive, right? Um, so my 13- and 14-year-old, like many of your children and, dare I say, grandchildren, were just raised with, you know, privilege, right? It's like, oh, you know, French is an interest of yours. Let me get a professor of French at Penn to come tutor you on Saturdays, which I did. Um, Or like, you know, for breakfast today, we have Whole Foods raspberries that have been washed for you and placed on a porcelain platter, and I practically put it into your mouth, right? So, So not a lot of struggle, not a lot of, you know, adversity, 
And I, I've, I've tried to get them to do hard things. Uh, that's why God made extracurricular activities, right? Like sports coaches and piano teachers who can be a lot tougher than I'm able to be with them. Uh, so I've outsourced a little bit of this to other adults. But this summer, something funny happened, which is in the end of August, just before we you know, turn the corner to the school year, they suddenly started doing stuff on their own, like actually setting their alarm and getting up and making a to-do list like I've been teaching them. And Woohoo, victory. Oh, my God, I know. I was so happy. And I think what might have happened with my kids and, and, and probably some partial explanation for me is that Whatever it is that my parents said, they modeled for me a commitment to excellence that was not lost on me. So though my father would say things that you would not necessarily want lots of parents to say, he modeled for me total passion for what he did and complete and utter perseverance. So now, and he's in the sort of final stages of, of Parkinson's and you know everything's deteriorating, but now, even in this state, my dad knows what it means to be a DuPonter, which is where he spent his whole career. Right. And the last things that are left in his brain are about his work and about the things that he did as part of this special organization. So I think in some ways we leave a legacy for our kids in ways that are explicit and overt in what we say to them and our lectures, and then maybe even more powerfully what we do for them and then for the people, of course, who we're leading, where they're modeling what we do. Got it. So has anyone got a, a book, Grit, handy? If not, I think there's one in our toolbox over here. Angela, we oh, missed the toolbox. Oh we actually we have tools in our toolbox, box. yeah. You, you're, you're in the top tray. That's so um, That's good. Uh, so um, there's a passage um, which I wonder if you would like to read or if you prefer I can read um, that goes uh, from, from oh, here God. to there. All right, I'll read it. Okay, great. You just as well could have. All right, so... Um, In my second year of graduate school, I sat down to a weekly meeting with my advisor, Marty Seligman. I was more than a little nervous. Marty has that effect on people, especially his students. Then in his 60s, Marty had just won, uh, no, Marty had won, just about every accolade psychology has to offer. His early research led to an unprecedented understanding of clinical depression. More recently, as president of the American Psychological Association, he christened the field of positive psychology, a discipline that applies the scientific method to questions of human flourishing. Marty is barrel-chested and baritone-voiced. He may study happiness and well-being, but cheerful is not a word I'd use to describe him. In the middle of whatever it was I was saying, a report on what I'd done in the past week, I suppose, or the next steps in one of our research studies, Marty interrupted. You haven't had a good idea in two years. Oh, this is fun because I get to pretend to be Marty. That's how he talks. Very baritone. Uh, I stared at him, open-mouthed, trying to process what he'd just said. Then I blinked. Two years. I hadn't even been in graduate school for two years. Silence. Then he crossed his arms, frowned, and said, you can do all kinds of fancy statistics. You somehow get every parent in a school to return their consent form. You've made a few insightful observations, but you don't have a theory. You don't have a theory for the psychology of achievement. Silence. What's a theory, I finally asked, having absolutely no clue as to what he was talking about? Silence. 
Stop reading so much and go, well, Marty, stop reading so much and go think. I left his office, went into mine, and cried. At home with my husband, I cried more. I cursed Marty under my breath, and aloud as well, for being such a jerk. Why was he telling me what I was doing wrong? Why wasn't he praising me for what I was doing right? You don't have a theory. These words rattled around in my mind for days. Finally, I dried my tears, stopped my cursing, and sat down at my computer. I opened up the word processor and stared at the blinking cursor, realizing I hadn't gotten far beyond the basic observation that talent was not enough to succeed in life. I hadn't worked out how exactly talent and effort and skill and achievement all fit together. So True story, as you know. You're like, oh, yeah. So I, I found that to be a very moving part of your book. And I just wonder, and I thought perhaps other people did too, because here you were on a trajectory, and it seemed like it, it went. Uh, so tell me how that felt, and tell me how that changed what you did. I think that for many of us, and you know, think back to the kid you were in elementary school, middle and high school. Like, for many of us, we don't have a lot of practice with criticism, and for many of us, we don't have a lot of practice even with being number two, right? So. I was a cheerleader, but of course I was the captain of the cheerleaders. And you know, I, I you know, went to run a committee, but of course they made me chair. And so a lot of my life has been this relatively low-friction thing. I was joking with Pete that on the train ride up, I'm sitting next to a private equity guy, and you know, by the time I got to Boston, he was literally giving me chocolates and his business card and asking me how I could be helped by him. And I was like, this is the way the universe should work. And that's the way a lot of my life has been. But when an incident like this happens, or when you are an 18-year-old who graduates valedictorian and captain of all three sports and gets to West Point, and you are not number one anymore, you are maybe below average for the first time in your life, it does hit you like a wall. And Marty was not the first time. Probably for me, it was when I was 18, and I got to Harvard, and I was nothing special. And I think those are the moments that make you grow. It's not that I went through the first two weeks of Harvard or that conversation and the resolution was, no, 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 I am uniquely special. I don't think that was the life lesson. I don't think that was the opportunity. I think the opportunity was, wherever I fall in the ranking of things, whatever my gifts are or whatever my aptitudes and my limitations, whatever those are, however unspecial or special I am here in this class at Harvard or sitting in this famous psychologist's office, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something that's useful. And I'm going to work as hard as I can on something that I love. And that is going to be enough. And that's what got me through those harrowing first few weeks in college. It's what got me through that conversation. There was a refractory period where I was crying and cursing and whining and pretty immature. But what, what characterizes really gritty individuals is that whatever their refractory period, they do eventually get back in. And let me just add one story before you ask me the next one. The hot novel this year is Nix. And you may have already read about it, N-I-X, but it's supposed to like break all records for fiction this year. And the story is actually really interesting because it's really this author's first novel, kinda. What happened was that he was working on writing short stories, novellas, his novel, 
on his laptop, and, you know, not being a total idiot, he did have a backup on a hard drive, but unfortunately they both got stolen at the same time out of the backseat of his car one day, and so he had nothing. He had nothing, no record of what he had done for years, and he slipped into a, a funk, he played a lot of video games, he didn't get off the couch, he stopped writing for months, but here is grit. He eventually dried his tears, stopped playing World of Warcraft, got out a new laptop, and started over again. And I think that is what I want to understand. That's what I want to reverse engineer. And I think it never comes from, oh, wait, everything's perfect. I was just temporarily... No, things are imperfect, and I'm imperfect, but I'm going to do something. So, so Marty Seligman is obviously a thought leader, and so are you. Um, and what thought leaders do you read or listen to top of mind that are uh, most inter- interesting and inspirational to you right now? Uh, well, Aristotle's a really good one, by the way. <laughs> um, and, and actually, I'll tell you something about thought leadership. And, and so, There aren't actually a lot of new, new, totally different thoughts that are true. One of the cadets yesterday said, Dr. Duckworth, ma'am, I love the ma'am, If you're going to do a culture, do whatever you want, but kind of love the mam-sir thing at West Point. Uh, So he says, "Uh, Dr. Duckworth, ma'am, isn't what you're saying, and with all due respect, kind of cliché? And I said to him, yeah, but most clichés are right. And I think that whatever it is that you're reading, you know, Aristotle or William James or Dale Carnegie or Marty Seligman or Carol Dweck or Danny Kahneman or Barry Schwartz, These things have been said before. It's because they're true. And I think that wherever you get your fix, it's important to recognize that it's, I think, part of being human to need reminders, right? It's important for me to pick up Carol's book and be reminded that really the brain is plastic and it can grow because we forget. So in whatever currency you get it, these basic truths, I think, are ones that are not necessarily new, but nevertheless need reminding. And I'll finally say this, that you can read social science. I mean, I actually don't read books like the one I wrote because I more quickly read journal articles, right? So I can read like 100 journal articles and four, I know how to read them and how to read the abstracts and it's faster for me. So I don't read books like this. But what I do like to read and I think is really worthwhile is poetry and literature because sometimes it's the same idea. It's like listening to Will Smith tell you what this very boring journal article said, but it's so much more fun. So read the Rudyard Kipling poem, If, and read Shakespeare, and you will find all the same psychological principles, but it'll sound better. Okay, so um, let me give that another go. Yeah. Uh, so if you're listening to a podcast or you're doing something that's short and informative, are there any people right now that you're listening to? Or Oh, yeah. So the thinkers that are really pushing me? Yeah, yeah. Well, I do think Anders Ericsson and, yeah. and his book. I actually got in trouble for like promoting his book while I was on my book tour. My publisher apparently was in the audience. And I was like, I'm in Chicago. Like, I got this email afterwards like, can you please not promote other authors' books while you're on our book tour? 
but anyway, you should read Peak, which is a great book, and it's by Anders Ericsson and Robert Poole. Um, uh, I think it is really well written. It's got a lot of very specific suggestions, and he really is the world expert on world experts. So, uh, so he pushes my thinking, and in particular, we're now trying to understand whether Martha Graham is universally correct, and that it's always awful to do deliberate practice, or, or can it be neutral? As many like they've, you know, in the spelling bee, when you look at the data from first-year competitors compared to kids who are veterans, they come back. The effort scores are the same for how they characterize deliberate practice, but they begin to enjoy it more or at least disenjoy it less. So I think what you find often with truly high practitioners is that the experience of deliberate practice can be different. Uh, and so I'm interested in how flow-like can deliberate practice be. And so I read Anders Ericsson, and I listen to er Anders Ericsson. I think the Freakonomics webcast is awesome. And in terms of world-class interviewers, the best interview that I ever did in my life, aside from the present one, was Stephen Dubner for Freakonomics. Yeah. He also gets you to say shit that you were like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm saying this, because you're not recording it, are you? And he's just like, well, just talk, and we'll talk about it. Yeah, we're not and I'm done like, yet. all right, here's my actual theory of human nature, and I say it, and I'm like, wow, it's now on the Freakonomics podcast. So anyway, I think that's really um, amazing work. And then finally, I'll say that there's work coming out of Stanford University. Uh, there's, there's, there's two people there that I think are really great. Aaliyah Crum, who studies having a stress mindset and what kind of mindset you have about stress. Uh, she's really terrific. And what she has found is that there are basically like fixed and growth mindsets. There's mindsets that you can have about stress. So you can believe that stress is always and entirely debilitating and to be avoided at all costs. Or you can have the belief, the mindset, that stress can have a cost, but there can be something enhancing. She calls it the stress-maybe-enhancing mindset. And so I think that's a very powerful idea, and we've done some work that really shows that it's true and that it really changes the way the same objective adversity can be experienced by people. And the second person I love there is Greg Walton. He's a psychologist who's found that in addition to the drive for excellence, which is a motivation I study, there's a huge uh, human motive universally for belonging, for, for fitting in. And it's not a coincidence that players at teams wear all the same jersey, or at West Point they're all part of the long gray line. And people want to fit in. And when you think of your own kids or the people on your team, yeah, you need to work on excellence and deliver practice, but if they don't feel like they fit in, then you have nothing. So it's a prerequisite for motivation and anything else to feel like you're part of the group. Yeah, so coincidentally, I don't know if members, people who are participants in the forum this year recall, a couple of years ago, we actually studied together. Anders Ericsson has a, uh, a journal article. I can't quote it exactly, but it's about unique teams and expert performance in unique teams, which is mm. a, an area that's of interest to us. Um, so uh, there are, are a lot of successful... Uh, business owners and um, advisors in this room. And we think a lot and talk a lot about goals. Um, but I think another thing that's of great interest to us are habits that lead to achieving goals. What are your best habits? So uh, I was uh, saying to a Penn alum in the room, but I was also sensitive to the fact that not everybody went to Penn in this room, that uh, on Monday I got a call from Amy Gutman, the president, and then Vince Price, the provost, saying that 
my application got picked as the only application Penn will advance to the MacArthur $100 million competition. This is a competition that the MacArthur Foundation, which not only gives out fellowships to individuals, also does other stuff, is going to give out a single prize of $100 million to one team in the world who will solve an urgent 21st century problem. And we, I say we because it's me and 22 other behavioral scientists, but I'm the leader, um, put in the uh, co-leader. I have another uh, female professor who's, we, we do it together, Katie and I. And uh, our hypothesis is that the single most important thing that you could do to improve human well-being in the 21st century is to solve the problem of enduring behavior change. If people took their statins and exercised and didn't eat so horribly, you would cut cardiovascular disease by 75%, and you would cut premature deaths by 40% overall. If kids went to class and paid attention and did their homework and didn't ritualize beating up each other, then college dropout rates would not be 70 to 80% as they are for many schools in this country. And if people learned how to, on a day-to-day basis, not buy the soy chai latte that they can't afford and instead put $4 into their retirement savings, then maybe we wouldn't have a country where half of households have no chance at a secure retirement because they haven't made those daily decisions. So to your question of habit, I think, as William James said in 1899, that habit is the great flywheel of society. Highly successful people are not making a thousand decisions every hour. There's so much that highly successful people have on autopilot. It doesn't occur to you that you wouldn't floss your teeth or that you wouldn't go for your run this morning or that you wouldn't do whatever it is that enables you to spend your cognitive capacity on the small number of decisions that are truly novel. So I think habit really underlies so much of of what we do. And in fact, to bring it back to the grit presentation, one thing that Anders Ericsson finds about gritty people who practice their weaknesses is they do it ritualistically. So it's not like, gee, I wonder when I'm going to get my basketball practice in today, or hmm, I wonder how I'm going to arrange my day to write my book. There's a routine, there's a habit that, you know, at 8 o'clock I do this, and at 8.30 I do that. And that actually gets you over that first initial bump of kind of getting out the door for your workout or, you know, having uh, whatever it is on your to-do list that may not be easy but is made a little easier by virtue of habit. Okay, so that's great framing. But if it's not too personal, what are your three best habits? So uh, one habit that I have is yoga. I so super. I know it's so yuppie to say, but yoga and mindfulness, I think, are real. I think there's actually great wisdom in these ancient traditions. And yeah, you can do the random assignment, placebo-controlled trial to show that it's real. And in fact, that's what people are doing. But probably practitioners for millennia have known that mindful physical practice is useful. By the way, I see analogous analogous um, uh, benefits for things like running, right? Uh, but but the, my point is that one of my habits is yoga, yeah. so I do that. Um, another habit that I have, um, or uh, that I'm trying to have, to be completely honest, is uh, the kind of three good things, uh, count your blessings yeah. kind of activity that uh, I try to do with my kids, and then I realize, wow, I'm actually 
I should do this myself. So, okay, so gratitude yeah. exercise. Gratitude, S- yeah. Say more about that. Yeah, so uh, uh, there is this exercise that has been shown empirically to be super awesome for your well-being, and that is to simply write down three good things that happened that day, and it's no more or less than that. You can do it in a journal, or you can do it in conversation. And, you know, for many people who say a blessing before a meal, uh, it's that general idea. But rather than just saying the blessing, you specifically say, one good thing is that Pete told me that it was awesome. And so, like, you know, or like they had nice raspberries. You know, it's, 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 it's no uh, more complicated than that. So I'm trying to have an even stronger gratitude habit. Great. Um, and uh, I guess the third uh, habit that I have is that um, I'm a real planner. So um, I think that uh, it's impossible to run a busy life with actually having things just scheduled and planned. So without even thinking about it, and by the way, if it's really a habit, you, you, you quite literally spend no conscious, you just do it. Um, when I have to do something, it's not like, yeah, I got to get back to Pete about coming up to, it's, it, it goes right into a plan. I mean, it, it goes into Thursday at 2.30 where I see a half an hour spot and, and then I don't have to think about it anymore. And then once Thursday at 2.30, Google Calendar will tell me that I'm supposed to think about, you know, Pete's last email. So I'm a real planner and I find that planning is, is also characteristic of, you know, not surprisingly, you know, people like Katie Ledecky and others, they set these super abstract long-term goals, the long, long, long-term, as you might call it, um, but then they back map into, you know, pretty much like knowing what they're going to do almost every minute of every day. So um, like a lot of people here, uh, you're a giver. And as a giver, um, and we can use Adam Grant's term if you want, yeah, or, or we, can, say, we, we can say it generally or we can say it specifically, but we know you're a giver. Givers get depleted. So uh, what do you do to what uh, my wife Corrine calls replete? What do you do to <laughs> rejuvenate, make young again, like refresh, That's good. replete? Deplete, replete. Right. Um, so for those of you who know Adam Grant's research, and he's a colleague and a friend of mine at Wharton, um, he uh, has this distinction between givers, takers, and matchers. So givers give without thinking about what the return is. You know, you leave the tip in the hotel room for housekeeping, and you're not thinking, like, well, maybe they'll be nice. I mean, you're just giving, right? Takers take as much as they can get and try to get away with it. And then matchers are kind of tit for tat. Like, I will give you a tip if I think that I'm coming back to your restaurant because then you will give me nicer food. And so those are three ways of living your life. And, and he finds that though there are some risks to being a giver, in general, things work out very well for givers. Uh, uh, and some of uh, the most successful people are, are givers. So I try to be a giver. It's true. Um, and whether it depletes me and I need to be repleted um, is, I think, a question that Adam has addressed in his research and that I've... I think resonated with when I read his research, and that is if you really are, you know, martyr-like in the, you know, I will never do for myself. I will never get my hair cut at a nice place, and you know, I will stay up and skip my workout the next morning so that I can do this favor for you. That I do think there is something exhausting about that. I think it's not sustainable. And interestingly, I don't even think it's the best thing for the other person, especially when that person is a family member uh, who has to live with you, Um, but even if you're their boss, right? So one of the things that I got, talk about deliberate practice, I got 
feedback. Every time I hire someone, like a postdoc or a 22-year-old, um, I, I, of course, get feedback from them. But at the end, I really get feedback from them because then they really are out the door. And they're like, OK, let me tell you what I really think. And one thing that I got feedback on that was really hard for me to hear was that when I come in and I am stressed out and exhausted, and I've only slept four hours because I spent the other 20 you know, doing the things as a mom but also as a professor, that even though I don't intend to, I stress them out. Uh, and it's interesting feedback because it's so true that when you are feeling great and vital and present and energetic and whole because you did get your yoga in or you got that run in and you did have time to eat breakfast and you did take time out to call your best friend, you come with a presence and an energy which I think is, um, is not only repleting for, for you, but I think it, it actually is just better for everyone else. So Adam, if he were sitting in this white chair, would say that Givers have to be mindful that human beings have limits, and to be a, a giver with grit, with stamina to keep giving, um, you actually have to sometimes take uh, and just take enough so that so that overall you can continue to be healthy. Right, right. So um, go with me to on a little journey here, okay. and let's uh, pretend. We go to sleep tonight. Okay. And <laughs> I was like, where is this going? And, but your uh, wife's in the room, so I guess it's not going anywhere bad. It, it may be repleting. Uh, Might be repleting for her. So uh, let's pretend we go to sleep tonight mm-hmm. and we wake up tomorrow. Yeah. And it's September 17th, 2026. Okay. Ten years from now. Yeah. What will you be working on? So I'll be 56 years old. Uh, And, you know, by the way, I've played this game with myself because I think about death every day. Every day I think about, like, you know, who knows, right? And you really, you really, you really don't. But one thing you know is it's not going to be long, right? I mean, we're we're such a brief-lived species. So it's never enough. And so I do. I think about death all the time. Like, okay, if I don't get to live any more than today, you know, what did I do? Like, what will my life add up to? Um, And I've thought that way for a really long time. My kids think I'm really morbid. They're like, you think about death all the time. I'm like, yeah, I know, but it's true. Um, So I've I've played this game with myself. In, In 10 years, when I'm 56 years old, I guarantee you that I'll be working on using psychological science to help children thrive. That will be what I do with my dying breath. Now, exactly what that looks like, who I'm going to be collaborating with, is it going to be through this nonprofit, or am I going to somehow do more work with somebody else's nonprofit? That I, I don't know. But, um, but I do think it's a great exercise. So we've given people some homework, or I did. I took yeah. the liberty of saying, like, okay, go home and like write it down, 10 words or fewer, get out a piece of paper, edit it, because it'll start out and not be 10 words. You're going to have to shorten it and so forth. Um, I, I think you might give people the habit of uh, the, the homework of, you know, what's one habit you might change. But, but I do think the exercise of just facing our, our mortality is, is, is something that is useful. And you should ask yourself, what am I going to be working on in 10 years? And if that's the case, am I doing the right thing? Today, By the way, when I ask people to work with me, like Anders Ericsson, who was in my office for two weeks in August, I was trying to, um, 
I can only use the word seduce, but it's like, but his wife was also there, by the way. Uh, seduce him into working with me on kids and education and the thorny, horrible problems of public schools and so forth. Um, and, and I always open with this, which is, Anders, you're going to die. It usually takes people aback. But I'm like, well, you are, okay? So let's just get, and before you die, you have one shot at doing something that will matter. And that's why you need to work with me. Uh, and that's the way I try to live my life. Great. So let me ask uh, maybe what the, the obverse question. So Ooh, if you work, I love that word. Nobody uses that word obverse. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. Well, the words you use matter, right? Yes. The, so the obverse question, I think, is, um, okay, so if you weren't doing what you're doing now and what you'd be doing 10 years, what would you secretly love to be doing? Oh, it's the counterfactual question, right? So I actually did a study at West Point where I asked cadets the counterfactual. Life is complicated. If things had turned out differently, what would be your path if you were not here at West Point? There were four choices. I didn't know you were going to ask me this question, but I'll just tell you because it's not in the book. I'll just say. So this West Point questionnaire, and by the way, it's Beast Barrack, so it's the same uh, survey collection as I, I showed you. Uh, they have a little box. They get to write in whatever they want. I coded this. It was like very interesting. You know, I'd be the, a lot of quarterbacks. I'd be the quarterback at ASU. I'd be the quarterback at uh, a lot of kids who would have gone to Yale, right? So you know, this is a very elite group. Um, but then they got a next question, which was, now look at what you wrote in the box above. How would you categorize it? Is it something? And by the way, this was an imaginary act. Like, what could you be doing? We really let them dream. Is what you dreamed of in that box, is it better than being at West Point? And 7% of cadets said, yeah, this fantasy that I have. And by the way, they're in the middle of Beast Barracks. So 7% of cadets can actually imagine something better than being there. Uh, then we said, uh, second option, uh, it's about the same, right? And that's, again, about 7-ish percent of cadets. Um, and then uh, there was this 70-some percent, you know, three-fourths of cadets, who uh, can't uh, say that this thing was better. It's worse than being where they are. So it's a downward counterfactual. So they name something, but they're like, actually, I'm much better off here at West Point than being quarterback at ASU. And thank God that's three-quarters of cadets, because that's where they are. And then my favorite, and I guess this would be me, is a final fraction, again, around 6 or 7%, who checked off the box... I couldn't really write anything because I can't imagine being anywhere else. And it's not only me, and it's not only 6 to 7% of West Point cadets. One of my favorite interactions was for Teachers of the Year. Every state in America each year has one teacher who's the Teacher of the Year. And so you have 50 of them in one room. And when I asked the question, for how many of you would you say you simply cannot answer the question, what would you be if you were not a teacher because your imagination doesn't go that far and more than half of the hands were raised? So I don't know. None of the above. <laughs> so um, I'm going to ask you a, a couple final questions before we take a break. Um, Having thought about grit now for uh, you know probably a dozen years deeply, um, what what is some of the worst advice you hear people talk about with respect to grit? Oh, oh, this is such a good. You, these are good questions. I guess you've done this before, but these are really good questions. Great. Um, 
so one thing I worry about is uh, tiger parenting and especially the flavor of tiger parenting where children's interests are never allowed to be cultivated. I mean, kids are, as we have you know, the experience of knowing, like not always doing and thinking and feeling what we want them to. And last night I met this um, Chinese young woman. She, like, as she put it to me, I'm Chinese Chinese, meaning that she wasn't raised here. She immigrated from China. She was like, no, I'm Chinese 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 because my parents are still in China. And this young woman uh, came here and, and went to a good school, and she really fell in love with dance. And so, uh, though she had to practice her piano and study her calculus and do AP bio, she really enjoyed more than anything the one hour of the day that she was in dance class. So what she decided to do against her parents' wishes is to start this nonprofit program in a very bad neighborhood in New York that would teach kids dance. And she was practically disowned by her parents. And so we had this conversation, and she said, well, the one saving grace is that my parents are actually in China, not here, and they, they, have, a li- they have enough imagination or whatever to just allow me to do what I'm doing. And they keep telling all their friends that I'm an investment banker, and <laughs> that's fine because, you know, they're in China, so nobody really knows. Um, but I think the thing that I would say is the single most dangerous thing to think that grit is, is that grit is, you know, the kind of stubbornness or the tenacity that comes from extrinsic motivation and from compliance and from coercion. Because when you really look at great CEOs, great entrepreneurs, great athletes, great coaches, great artists, they are not motivated by somebody else telling them what to do. You know, when I think about a really gritty person, this is what I think about. It's Saturday morning, and you're making coffee, and guess where your mind goes? It's Sunday, and you're taking a walk, and guess what you're thinking about? You're having dinner with you know, old friends, and guess what you want to have a conversation about? That kind of voluntary obsession that is characteristic of the people I study does not come from somebody telling you that you should play piano and go to medical school. Got it. That's a great answer. Uh, so here's another deep question. So in this room, as we've been thinking about grit, and so the people who are invited to the Bigelow Forum uh, received your book maybe, I don't know, a month or two ago. Yeah. And uh, we've been chatting about how it applies to ourselves and our families and our, our organizations. Uh, in this room, uh, I would say a superior achievement is very common. Fulfillment is not. Mm. Is grit compatible with fulfillment? Can I ask you to double-click on fulfillment so that I understand how you're using that word? So, um, yeah. Contentment. Ah, so, so you would say that some of us are super high achievers, but we would not say, yeah, I'm very content or I'm satisfied. Yeah, and, and it seems to me that grit connotes a certain amount of striving and uh, goal orientation achieving, right? We just talked about it. Would, okay. But is that compatible with fulfillment. So I let me begin with the graph that I showed you, right? Which is Which that one? the one that said life satisfaction as uh, a function of grit, right. where you find a pretty monotonic, you know, pretty pretty linear relationship, more grit, more life satisfaction. Of course, that questionnaire very importantly 
is phrased like, I wouldn't trade my life for others. Overall, I'm satisfied with my life, which I would answer affirmatively to. Overall, I have an amazingly awesome, dare I say, awesome sauce life, right? So yeah, it's kind of great. But if you said, are you satisfied, for example, with your work? Are you satisfied with the book that you wrote? Are you satisfied with the project that you're working on? I'd say, oh my god, absolutely not. Am I satisfied with the talk that I just gave? Well, it's wonderful to have a standing ovation, but I do need to know what I could do better, which my friend David Lavin's going to tell me afterwards. Uh, so, because he's watching and he's a world-class expert on speaking, so he'll tell me here are two things that you could do differently. So I'm satisfied overall with my life, but I'm not satisfied with any particular thing that I'm working on. Here's what I think is true, and again, you know, during the break or uh, or or maybe during the panel, this will come up. I'm fascinated to know what you think, but people who are able to say I am satisfied overall with my life. Uh, but yet I'm striving, yet I'm not satisfied with this book or that talk. They are comfortable being uncomfortable. They are satisfied being dissatisfied. And that's the best way that I can put it for myself and for the people that I study. So Mark Vetri, the chef that I mentioned, who can stare this woman in the eyes and say, because I know how to cook, who takes great pride in being excellent at what he does, Take him as an example. After winning Best Restaurant in the United States for food and then for Italian, I mean, for winning all these accolades, James Beard Award, he went to Italy, as he periodically does, and he ate in Italy, as he periodically does, being of Italian heritage and running Italian restaurants. And one day he realized that the pasta that he was eating was just a little bit better than what he was making back home. And then he went to the kitchen, and then he started talking to the chefs, and it turns out that these chefs were, as is a tradition in artisanal work in Italy, milling their own flour, right? In fact, milling flour that was locally grown so that it wouldn't have to be, you know, sitting around for days before it got milked. So Mark Vetri comes back to his restaurants, and he changes everything. We are, from now on, going to mill our own flour for our pasta, which, by the way, means that we have to buy a pasta milling, you know, to our specifications and develop these relationships. Now, he didn't have to do that, but that is somebody who is both overall pretty darn happy with his life, because I asked him, and he said he was, but never satisfied. And for some of us who are at, you know, maybe a more... I guess I will say, uh, advanced stage of our life, who have already accomplished so much, right, as you pointed out. The question is, for those of us at that stage, is, you know, am I done? You know, am I done learning? Is it, like, enough for me? Or is there something that's still out there that I could continue to learn, that I could, even though I'm so good at what I do and I've already accomplished these things, nobody's asking me to do these things at my age, but am I still learning? And those are the people, I think, who are truly world-class, not just by objective measures, but for themselves feel like that's my kind of fulfillment. Angela, we really want to thank you. I personally really want to thank you. Thank you, Pete. For uh, your, your creativity and your unique ability and also for the inspiration that you give to all of us here today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs>